0: Optimal At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question?
1: Now I just in a perfect time. What if I did the
2: opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Me, Tim,
0: This episode is brought to you by Ring. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You might already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. Ring helps you to stay connected to your home from anywhere in the world. Very important for me, given how much I travel and bounce around. So, if there's a package delivery or a surprise visitor, good or bad, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to whoever is at your door, all from your phone. I've personally used Ring for years now. I've known about Ring from day one, actually, and tried early prototypes and throughout, so I've been a user for a long time. It catches and records all the regular stuff, like deliveries and so on, but it's also saved my ass quite a few times, catching weirdos and weird things. So ring is key to my peace of mind and as a listener of the Tim Ferriss show you have a special offer on a ring welcome kit available right now at ring.com tim t-i-m the kit includes a video doorbell and a chime pro which are just what you need to start building a ring of security around your home today so check it out go to ring.com tim to take advantage of this offer today or just to learn a little bit more check out the details at ring.com slash tim. This offer is for U.S. residents only. This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year, I focused on dramatically improving a few things. Surprise, surprise. Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit... You name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect Mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders. So check it out. Get up to 125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look, helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. Well, hello, boys and girls, ladies, and germs. This is Tim Ferriss. Welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show, where it is my job to sit down with world class performers of all different types, and this is going to be a different one, to tease out the mental models, favorite books, and so on that you can test and apply in your own life. This episode features the amazing Marcella O'Talora, O T apostrophe A L O R A. You might not recognize that name, but you'll get her bio after this intro and understand exactly why I so wanted to sit down with her. This interview was recorded live at the Psychedelic Science Summit here in Austin, Texas, which you can learn more about at psychedelicscience.org. It was organized by MAPS, all caps, M-A-P-S, standing for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, and featured presentations from founder of MAPS, Rick Doblin, mycologist Paul Stamets, addiction expert Dr. Carl Hart, and many, many more. You can learn more about MAPS and their training for aspiring psychedelic therapists, that is, above-ground legal psychedelic therapists at maps.org forward slash training. Also, we compiled extensive resources for this episode. And to make them easily accessible, links to everything, further reading, next possible steps, etc. You can go to tim.blog slash therapist, and it will take you straight to To where you want to go. So, tim.blog forward slash therapist will take you directly to the blog post for this podcast episode. And you can scroll down to the show notes for links to everything that we mention and everything you could possibly want. So, be sure to check that out. tim.blog forward slash therapist therapist. There were a few small glitches in my audio at the very beginning of the interview, but my microphone was very quickly replaced. So thank you for your patience for the first few minutes. It's intelligible, and it improves after the first few minutes. So all that said, without further ado, please enjoy this wide-ranging interview with Marcella Otalora.
2: I'm so excited about this interview. I know a lot of you are too. Tim Ferriss and Marcella O'Talora, who is um, a MAPS person. Uh, Tim Ferriss is a supporter of MAPS and, a psychedelic, and the psychedelic research and shifting the beliefs about psychedelic medicine in our culture and for that we are very grateful. He has been called a cross between Jack Welsh and a Buddhist monk by the New York Times. He is one of Fast company's most innovative business people and an early-stage tech investor. He is the author of five number one New York Times and Wall Street Journal bestsellers, including The 4-Hour Workweek. The Observer and other media have named him the Oprah of Audio, due to the influence of his podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, which has exceeded 400 million downloads. His latest book is Tribe of Mentors, Short Life Advice from the Best in the World, and he is one of the world's most popular podcasters. We are so thrilled to have him. Marcella is a psychotherapist and an installation artist. Her interest and focus on trauma has led her to understand the healing process as an intimate reconnection with one's essence through love, integrity, acceptance, and honoring of the human spirit. In addition to working with trauma and PTSD, she has dedicated her professional life to teaching and research. She uses art as a vehicle for deepening the relationship to self, others, and the natural world. Marcela worked as a co-therapist in MAP's very first government-regulated MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study in Madrid, Spain, and she has served as the principal investigator for MAP's Phase II MDMA-assisted psychotherapy study in Boulder, Colorado, and currently in the MDMA Healthy Volunteer Study and Phase III site, also in Colorado. Additionally, she is a trainer and supervisor for therapists working on MAP studies for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. I would say one of the things that I think of when I think of Marcella is if there was one person that I would want to put my future training in uh, the hands of, or my psyche or my soul in the hands of, she would certainly be maybe one of the top two people in the world, so I, I have great respect for the work that she does on behalf of MAPS, Please welcome Tim and Marcella to the stage to discuss Marcella's work as a psychedelic therapist and MAPS therapist trainer.
0: Ooh, there you go. Thanks. Thank you. Good day, everyone. Thank you for coming. This is the third participant. Molly, the dog, not named after any particular molecules. And uh, this session we have lots of time for, we have 90 minutes, it is a good stretch. We may not go that long. We will see. We're gonna surf the waves and I'm thrilled to be here. After that intro, please give me time to disappoint, it's all downhill. After that bio, I'm very good at writing them in third person. And uh, I really just want to jump in. Molly, you are going to sit at sentry duty? Here. down. <laughs> a little less sphinx for this topic, I think, is a good idea. And uh, Marcella, I think we could, we could just start at the beginning. If you could tell us a little bit about where you're from, where you grew up, just to give us a little bit of context.
1: Sure. Um, I grew up, I was born in Colombia. Um, and I was raised there. I came to the states when I was 20.
0: Mm-hmm. And when you were in your childhood or early teens, you can pick. What did you think you wanted to be when you grew up, or what you would be?
1: Hmm. This is kind of like a um, edgy story because what I wanted to be was a fire truck.
0: You wanted to be a fire truck.
1: Yeah, I wanted to be a fire truck.
0: Wow, that. That's incredible. I think we should <laughs> dig into this. So this was not an enhanced vision of what you wanted to be. This was this was uh, this was a decision you came to as a, as a little girl. How did you decide on fire truck? What was the appeal of the um, fire truck?
1: They were very shiny and red, and they had ladders, which I love, and hoses, <laughs> and so, um, all true. Usually, like dogs, yeah. were part of the team, and you could, and it was just like you could you could literally block a road. Like, you had that much power. Like, you could just block a road. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, what was interesting is that a lot of people, when I told them that, they would say, do you mean a fire person? I said, no, a fire truck. And everybody thought it was either like, oh, poor thing, you know, like, oh my God. Right. <laughs> or Or, um, Like, I hope somebody tells her or something like that. (laughs) But but, um, my mother worked at the mental health uh, hospital, and I used to love going there and playing cards with um, all the inmates. It was something that I really... um, where I felt safe, actually. And so there was this man. His nickname was Fosforito, which means uh, little match. He was a paramaniac. And... um, he asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I told him, and he was the first person ever who said, wow, do you mean like one of those red fire trucks? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was
0: fabulous. <laughs> Fosforito, got it. Yes. You totally got it. Why did you feel safe in that environment? Why did you feel comfortable in that environment, in the hospital?
1: Well, And um, how
0: old were you, roughly?
1: When I decided to be a fire. No,
0: when you when you were playing cards with Fosforito? Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I um, I started maybe when I was around twelve, and I um, it's kind of like what I asked for my birthday every year to go spend um, time there and um, play cards and talk to people, and um, I think it was where I felt seen. Um, I think I was I came. You know, I grew up in a country where civil war started when I was born practically, and um, it wasn't safe. And I saw a lot of things happen because of um, the war on drugs and just the danger of the city where I grew up. And um, my family of origin wasn't safe. Um, There was a lot of abuse, and so it was like, I could be with people who didn 't care about that mm. yeah
0: There's a I suppose a purity uh, in a way, yeah, like an insulation yeah so the the feeling scene, I think will probably be a perhaps a theme that carries through uh, the conversation, but if we flash forward, where did interest in Psychedelic therapy or exposure to that begin. How did you end up finding your way to that subject or path?
1: Mm-hmm. So I um, I ran away from home when I was 17 and ended up in the streets, and so I was homeless for a while, which was probably one of the hardest experiences. Um, I ended up with like the wrong crowd. After that, and um, spend a year in a really abusive situation, and then I decided to kind of like find a way to escape. So, so my escape was to come to the United States. I had been here uh, when I was 12, and I loved it. It was one of those experiences where you know, like when you when you have all these expectations of a place and you think, oh, it's going to look like this, or it's going to be like this, and it never quite matches. Well, it matched. And um, it was when reading Dick and Jane books. You're too young for it.
0: No, I remember Dick and Jane.
1: It was like Dick and Jane and Spot. Yeah. I just, it made me want to come to the States. They had like back doors where you didn't have to lock it, and they had canned, um, cookie jars, and it was great. And so it just matched the town that I ended up in. Um, Where
0: were you? Where in the I U.S.? I was in
1: Boston. Boston. For a little while, outside of Boston. So I really wanted to come back. And I came back. It was really hard. I was alone. Didn't have money. Didn't, you know, had this little scholarship to go to college. And um, so I started, I think part of it was that I thought if I left, the traumas would go away. Like that I somehow would surpass it and if I could forget about it, it would be gone. And so I think that was my, my thinking. And of course that doesn't happen. Um, and I lived six years with a lot very restricted life, didn't really talk to people, it was just really uh, difficult and my world was pretty small. And then um, I had never done any kind of drug ever. Uh, I had not even smoked pot, Um, and I um, took MDMA recreationally for the first time, and what it did was it brought back everything, and it was, I wasn't ready for that. I thought it was just going to be, oh, this is going to be something great, it's going to feel good, you're going to feel good, and it was the opposite, it was really challenging, and I... Um, was not in a safe environment. I wasn't with people who could really hold that, who could understand it. And it was more like fear. Oh, no, what is happening to this person? And so I knew that. Like, I knew that it wasn't safe, so it made it worse. And I ended up in the hospital. And then um, a friend...
0: Ended up in the hospital because you're, the people around you thought you were having a panic attack or you yeah. self-administered.
1: yes. So um, then a a mutual friend of Rick's and I um, asked Rick if he would do MDMA with me. Um, And I think what it was, too, was that even though it was a really traumatic experience, I also knew that there was something really powerful about the fact that I couldn't lie anymore. Mm. So It
0: had had unlocked all of that.
1: Yeah. So... um, So I did MDMA with Rick and uh, a couple of other people. And they held the container. And um, it was like um, I saw myself for the first time.
0: The self that you had lost. Yeah. What did... What did Rick or other people involved, and it doesn't have to be exact phrasing, but say to you or do to make you feel comfortable going back into that experience? Mm -hmm. What was the lead-up, I suppose, to the session? What did that look like?
1: It was about um, totally being okay with whatever came up. Like, I couldn't do it wrong. You know, And I think you know, You said that to me in the green room, you're like, you can't do this wrong. And it was just like so helpful <laughs> of um, it's okay to be you, right, yeah. it's okay to be who you are. And so I felt that and, um, and it was like, wow, there's this person that has rights. Um, I felt like all my rights had been taken away. So I had rights for the first time in my life. Like, I had an inkling of it, that I had rights and that I mattered. And that there was somebody in there that actually didn't have trauma. Somewhere in there.
0: So you have this experience. What happens in the days and weeks after that experience?
1: hmm That's a good question. Um... I think I did it three times, maybe two, within the course of a month or two. Um, I was very fortunate because I was able to stay in Rick's house, so it was sort of like a secluded place for me to be before I had to return to my life. And um, I was able, I read a lot, I wrote a lot, and I read and I tried to capture what had happened sort of like this idea of a lack of self-consciousness that had happened. And I think up to that point, my self-consciousness was all about fear and not belonging. And here was like, wow, like there is this like lack of self-consciousness. Like, it's, it's okay. It's okay if you cry. It's okay if you laugh. It's okay. And I think that um, Rick provided that too. Like, I could be alone. I could dance around, I could eat, I could not eat, I could just be. So it allowed me to just begin a process of of understanding what was going on. And I think some of what was going on was that I looked at, that for the first time, I could look at it, I wasn't looking at trying to make sense of the trauma. I was my symptoms were completely appropriate for what had happened in my life. It wasn't crazy. It was completely appropriate. And I, um, you know, it gave me freedom. It gave me freedom to explore some other things and to think like, wow, well, maybe I do have a say in how I live my life. And, um, and I started, you know... Um, I started trying like little things of testing that while I was in those, in those days afterwards. So I started this, uh, a day without learning. Like I wanted a whole day without learning anything. Could I do that? And a day where I said no to everything. So testing this ability to have some say about my life. So that's what it was like, the, you know, the days after that.
0: What did the space look like or the journey, I suppose, from that personal experience to wanting to be more involved as a facilitator or a therapist?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I think because of my own suffering and having um, had quite a bit of therapy before then, um, I I did have therapy before uh, that experience. Um, And it just didn't work that much. It wasn't very helpful. Um, I had a diagnosis of schizophrenia. That was like the first diagnosis I had. And I think it was, you know, that I realized that so many people could not understand trauma, could not understand like the symptoms of trauma. So um, I thought like, wow, like it actually saved my life. You know, I felt like um, it, it was just something that was giving me this opportunity and I was an art teacher at the time and I just thought like, I really want to do this. I want to do this for other people. I want to be able to um, help other people. Um, Rick started MAPS a couple of years after that. So he and I did our work the year before MDMA was criminalized in 1984. I was 25, 26. Um... And so I thought we're really far away from that. Like I I couldn't imagine that it would ever happen, that you could be, that there was a potential of being a psychedelic psychotherapist. But I was determined that I wanted to work towards that. And it took me a few years. I went to graduate school for art and taught some more and then went back to school so that I could become a psychotherapist and be ready.
0: You're, you're paddling for the wave early. Uh, and you've done so much good work and helped so many people. Who are some of the influences outside, or what are some of the influences outside of Rick who have shaped how you've approached becoming the therapist you are today? hmm
1: mm-hmm. Claudio Naranjo, who died recently... Um... He was definitely I, I was I resonated a lot with the way he did the work, and so he was one of my heroes. And um, I I tend to look for um, books and writings, not through psychotherapy so much. I read those sometimes, but they feel like work. And so I think a lot of the inspiration comes from. Aruaco Indians in the mountains of Colombia, the way that they approach life through psychedelics and their healing, the way they heal. Um, So their stories are very powerful to me. I lived um, very close to them for a year before I came to the States. Um, And I read a lot about artists. So there's different artists that have written about how to be an artist. And I think what it is is that they're very genuine and they talk about themselves in a way of um, this is where I come from this is the struggles that I've had as an artist this is where I go and, um, and so it's so informative to do this work I think um, Agnes Martin is one of my favorite artists and she wrote extensively about how she came to her work and she was very private an introvert I tend to be the same way um, so there was a lot of things that resonated with me about her. And you know she had this idea that, about perfection that was really beautiful. Like she said, you know, perfection doesn't exist in the world, but the reason why we're so attached to it is because we can't imagine it. And so those kinds of information are really great for when you work with somebody with trauma. So I, th- I would say that that has influenced me the most.
0: And for those people who are here or listening who don't recognize Claudio's name, uh, there's a fantastic book, it's either The Healing Journey or A Healing Journey, uh, about much of his work, which is very well written. I mean, the introduction alone is worth the price of admission with the book. And on the... I'd never thought of it quite this way before, but as you're talking about art, uh, it, it really made me think... I've been taking art classes. For the last few months All right. what kind? And mostly uh, drawing charcoal, working with uh, pastels, mm-hmm. different types of uh, d- different types of tools with the ultimate goal of getting to at least as a next step painting and working with color. but the point that was made to me over and over again by my teacher is. In effect, you're not learning to draw, you're learning to see. You have to learn to see first. And you need to draw what you see and not what you know. Because you might look at a chair and then look down at your paper and draw your concept of a chair, but you've stopped seeing. And I can see how that could apply to listening and hearing and really translate to a lot of the work that you do. And if we look at your beginnings, there really wasn't an established path to become what you wanted to become, or at least I would imagine not. There were resources, but very scattered, uh, and certainly scattered resources also exist today. But things have have changed quite a lot, and things are developing very quickly. For people who are listening, and this has been a a challenge for me to decipher as well, because I, I have many in my audience, many friends who come to me and ask the question of How to become a psychedelic therapist, and I don't have a really straightforward answer for them. And I know it's it's sort of a process that is is evolving. But as it stands right now, if someone listening is interested in becoming a psycho a I was going to say a psychotherapist, a psychedelic therapist of some type. how would you suggest they think about it? And I suppose there are at least two buckets. You have people who are starting from scratch in the sense that they don't have any of the credentials or academic qualifications that might help. And then you have the folks who maybe are already on second base and just have to kind of round the corner. Uh, But if someone were starting from scratch, because we're looking forward, we're recording this in, in late 2019, hopefully in the next few years at least MDMA, hopefully also psilocybin, will have completed successful phase three trials and been reclassified, meaning the legal status will have changed to enable some degree of prescription. Uh, For people who want to start preparing for that, where do they start? What do they need to know?
1: Um, I think the first part is do your work. Do your own work. Really um, understand... um, who you are, how your experiences have shaped you, how comfortable you feel with your own suffering. I, um, when I do trainings, I tell people, um, the only way to not be afraid of someone's suffering is if you're not afraid of your own. And to do that, we have to know and have done our own work. So I would say that that would be a really important one because psychedelic work um, is not easy. And we do experience a lot of um, trauma in the room that comes out in various ways. And um, also to pay attention to um, therapies or modalities that honor the person as the expert of who they are. Because no matter what... You know, you can be poor and you can be uneducated. You're still the expert of your experiences and who you are. So no matter who you are, and, and I say that just because so many people take away that uh, those rights uh, of people who are marginalized. And so to really be able to to study and be around and read about... Um, honoring the human being as they know more about their healing than anybody does. And can we respect that and approach that? Um, One of the principles for our training is that we believe in their capacity for self-direction and for their own development and that we also believe that they have a healing intelligence that will show up and um, that we can work with that, and we can honor that. Um, So it's not like this hierarchical model. It's more like, can we meet somebody at this level together and collaborate and create trust and and empower them to be able to understand and to know where their path is and to, to really respect that path. Um, and to feel that our, our own experience of ourself, that there is room, our reality makes room for the reality of another human being, that there is room to accept that reality. So I would say that you can start there. So there's some therapies that are good, you know, humanistic therapies and client-centered therapies that you could study, but also that there's a lot of work that you can do on your own.
0: So it seems like we could almost separate the preparation and development into skill set on one hand, mm-hmm. which is sometimes then overlapping with qualifications right. to be a legal psychedelic mm-hmm. therapist. So let's talk more about the skill set for a bit because right. I think that's what we're talking about. Uh, there are certain modalities, and I've had the, the good fortune to sit through some trainings mm-hmm. through MAPS, even though I am effectively auditing, I'm not currently preparing to be a, a, a psychotherapist, but I really wanted to get a better understanding of the training that exists because um, one of the big questions for me is how do we ensure a, an acceptable level of quality as the number of therapists is scaled through different training approaches and it's time sensitive, right? So I sat in in the training and just to underscore a few things that you said, uh, the protocol seems to really take as a, a base assumption that there's a lot of self-directed healing, that there's some type of inner healing intelligence. And I remember sitting in the training, and in this case it was with uh, Michael and Annie Midhofer. and Michael said, it's always challenging to do these trainings because we're showing you video clips of the interventions or when we interact, but the vast majority of the time we are doing nothing. I mean, we're present, paying attention, but the, the patient is doing their work. And uh, I, I took a lot of notes in the process of sitting through multiple days of, of learning, and I remember one thing that stuck out, which was from the founder of IFS, and I always mispronounce, is it internal family systems? Yes. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, but there's this acronym. Dick Schwartz. What was his Dick name? Dick Schwartz. And it's a, it seems to be a really valuable framework for some therapists, and people can look into this uh, on their own, but he, has, he had an acronym, WAIT, for therapists to remember, and it stands for Why Am I Talking? Yes. Which I thought was just genius. <laughs> and uh, are there any other... Uh, modalities that you think are particularly helpful and translate well into the MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, of course, not just the session. There's the pre and the post. But for instance, would, is uh, Hakomi yes. is one that comes up quite mm-hmm. a lot. Could you could you describe that and if and, and your thoughts and, on Hakomi? Yeah,
1: and I I'm not a Hakomi therapist, but um, I think Hakomi. When I have seen people who have studied Hakomi. Um, they are following, they are tracking what is it that is coming from the participant, what is it that they um, are, are needing, and how do I trust um, them to really give me the information to um, be able to support them. So I think Hakomi is one of them. Internal family systems is too. Um, mostly because in, in all... I I see it every single time that in, especially in MDMA sessions, that parts come out and it happens really naturally. And I think, you know, we all have parts and people always say like, oh, like, you you know, where does that come from? But we all have parts, you know. People always say like, oh, a part of me wants to go to that party and a part of me doesn't want to go. That's a part. Um, And not necessarily that you need to study internal family systems. but have knowledge of multiplicity of parts show up the inner healer is a part and when do they show up and how do we how are we really present with that maybe the part that shows up is five years old and if it's five years old we don't want to talk to them like they're 40 you know we want to be able to be be sensitive to the fact that this is a five-year-old part what do i need to do to connect to this part so i think parts work is really important um familiarity with non-ordinary states. You know, I. it's hard for me to think of being able to do this work without having had some experience yourself of a non-ordinary state to really... It's, it's, because it's hard to explain, right? It's hard to explain what it, what it does.
0: Very difficult to explain. <laughs> uh, are, there, are there certain tools that you've found helpful? Of course we could talk about the things that are gray or gray area or not so gray area in terms of of molecules that can help with this. Uh, And just for people who are wondering on spelling, Hakomi is H-A-K-O-M-I if you want to look it up. Are there any tools that you have found particularly helpful, whether that's holotropic breathwork or other breathwork or other uh, legal means to induce non-ordinary states of consciousness Mm -hmm. for people who recognize and agree that it would be important to have the first-person experience yeah. before presuming to know how to handle someone else going through that experience.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I wanted to say a couple of things about that. So we, we do have a study currently called MT1, which uh, Rick mentioned briefly this morning. Was that this morning? Yes. Um, <laughs> he said, he talked a little bit about MT1. So MT1 is a, is a study designed um, to... For the therapists themselves to have the experience of MDMA. So they it's a five-day process. They come for a preparatory session, then they have a treatment session, an integrative session, a treatment session, an integrative session. And one of those two treatment sessions is a placebo, and the other one is full MDMA. And so the therapists get Ex- the experience—not only you know—some of them have had MDMA before in a, in, a, in a different context, sometimes even recreationally. And this, but this feels different because it's exactly the setting that they're going to be in. There's two therapists, there's music that goes on the, the whole day. There's times for them to go inside and times for them to connect and and relate, and so it's. It, so many of them have said this has this has really solidified my training now I really do feel ready to go and do it so that's great, and we have it. The the other part of that MT2, which is what we want to continue when we do trainings with people to give them, and that's in it's in the FDA right now. It's in negotiations with the FDA for that study. So I think that is great, and I hope we can, you know, we are able to continue that work. Um, But holotropic breathwork is one way to really get into uh, a non-ordinary state, some in a way that is Legal ketamine is another way, you know. Like if ketamine work, um, does create that? I think meditation does that. Sometimes certain yoga does that as well. So it's like really being able to say, what is it? Um, what does this actually feel like when my ego is not the most important part? When I, when I'm starting to connect to, uh, kind of like a, yeah, I study transpersonal, so it's uh, this idea of that we are in relationship to our, our non-ordinary states, that it, that it is beyond the ego and how can we go there. So to have that experience, I think it's really, really important. And participants ask, you know, they always say, have you done this? You know, and they, there's just a sense of calm for them when you say, yes, I have.
0: What are the, as things stand right now, legal checkbox or qualification checkbox. Uh, checkbox, is needed if one wants to be a psychedelic therapist a few years from now or five years from now. Uh, and uh, I don't know the answer, to be perfectly honest. And it's part of the reason I am so excited about having this conversation is that to satisfy the demand safely and adeptly of that the reclassification of some of these compounds will bring, there needs to be a, a, quite a large funnel of people who are interested in understanding at least what the roadmap might might look like uh, and we 'll we'll talk about other maybe realities that people should be aware of before they sign up uh, we 'll get to that, but first, what does the training process look like? Is there an educational requirement? Do you have to have gone to college? Are there things you can do in two years? Mm-hmm. What, what does the path look like? Mm-hmm.
1: So some of that is in the negotiation right now with the FTA in terms of um, our, who our therapy pairs can be. Uh, you know, one thought is that any one of them needs to be a PhD, which I'm totally uh, opposed to because I don't have a PhD. <laughs> and so then I still want to be able to do this work. Um, and, and I think it's really based on um, psychotherapy experience, not necessarily if you're a PhD and MD or not. Um, so hopefully that won't be the case. Right now we have it that one clinician is licensed and the other one doesn't have to be licensed, but they still need to have done at least uh, three years of work in a mental health profession. So it could be a nurse, it could be um, an MD, it could be a psychiatrist, it could be a chaplain. There was, there was some some a question about chaplaincy early on, and that could be another one. And then psychotherapists and different clinicians. Um, but they don't have to n- be licensed. And so they... Just for
0: clarity, what type of license are we talking about?
1: So, like, having a license to be a psychotherapist, to, to, um, to be able to say that you're a psychotherapist. And, and different states have different requirements for that. Uh, so... Um, so that's wh- what we've done and what we hope to continue doing, um, to do their own work, to have experience with working with trauma with adults. Um, it, it's, it's a really important one. And then uh, also, if they're affiliated with an existing site, then there's more probability because the sites, when people apply, um, they apply as a site. So there's at least two therapists or two uh, clinicians who are gonna sit. And th- they, you do need to have an MD to hold a Schedule One license. And then a facility, right? A facility where you can actually do this safely. Um, set in setting is so important, right? So a place that really feels comfortable that where they can be and everybody can feel safe and the participants can feel safe. So, um, So, Those are some of the requirements that we have. Um, We've trained about 500 therapists so far, and about 150 of them have gone through the whole certificate program. Um, Our program is a five-part. So the first part, part A, is online. It's an online course. And then part B is a one-week in-person course, which is the one that you did Right. You know,
0: I did. I did the online as well. So I did the part one and part two.
1: Okay, great. And so, a lot of people have done those. You know, like the people that have trained have done those two parts. And then a part C is when they do. They either have. They do a training that they think would be really valuable to do this work. Somatic is something that I didn't mention. Somatic work is really important um, because. Trauma is definitely held in the body, and MDMA is very somatic. So sometimes people do those kinds of trainings, and that um, fulfills that part C. And another, the way that we want to do it is through this MT1 or MT2, that where um, the therapist can come and take MDMA in a safe place, and the same way they're going to do it, and so where they maybe can sit. With, for another person doing it as well with one of us. And then, so you get this really nice um, experience, right? That is right hands on. And then the next part is um, within their sites, they do role plays that are then. Um, that they can then let us know and they have to write about them and we we get we give them supervision based on what happened in the role plays and the role plays are based on real life experiences and um questions come up and things you know like oh i i didn't know how to do this or they just get more and more help because they're doing this um kind of role play role playing um And then we would also um, supervise their first participant that they work with. So one of our supervisors would be uh, watching their videos and like really extensively, um, as part of our training, we've done that where we looked at their videos and and given them feedback. And, you know, we're talking about like eight-hour session videos. So
0: So for, for people who are listening who do not have academic or medical credentials currently, but they want to explore the first few steps of putting themselves into a position where they could perhaps sit in the room with someone else who is licensed. If you want to become a licensed psychotherapist, you can figure that out on your own. But let's assume that that is not in the cards for people who uh, are listening, but they want to be that second person or put themselves in a position where the odds are increased that they'll be able to do that what what are some first steps that you might suggest to them aside from the experiential the first-hand experiential pieces but the actual uh, prerequisites for moving in that direction
1: um, I'm not sure if I, I hope I understand your question correctly but if, in order for them to get to that place of being able to really sit, then they need to have had these things that I've mentioned. You know, they need to have some experience working with trauma and that they're working towards um, either licensure or that they're in the process, they're registered or, you know, that, that they're in the process of it.
0: And if just we, we make it specific, that was a terribly worded question that I gave you and a very long one. It was like a paragraph. You can ask
1: it in Spanish.
0: Brain vomit. Ah, por favor. Anyway, I, I could. Really I, well. I could, I could. I think it would be even more confusing, but we'll see. We'll see how how, how well my caffeine kicks in. Soy porteño trucho. Te digo la verdad. Entonces, you should do it in English. So uh the uh, now my brain's running off on this completely other tangent but i'll try to I'll try to reel in the Marlin here for a second <laughs> back, Tim thread maps training, oh yes, so if someone were listening, they're sitting in Chicago mm-hmm. and they have an undergrad degree but no advanced degree. Uh, would you suggest they go to the maps website first to gain the experience that you're talking about? what are some of the less intimidating experiences that people could test for a week or two or three? Are there any uh, particular suggestions that you might have?
1: Mm-hmm. I see what you're saying. Um, you know, they we don't have any of the scheduled trainings for next year yet, but we will by the end of this year. So... I would suggest, and I'll and I'll put some at the end uh, at the end of the session. I'll have the website, the website's up, to apply for the newsletter, and then to to get information and to keep getting updates about when the trainings are and what is required and what are the changes that have happened. But there's also a space where there's other people from different parts of the country and the world that really one, to get a site together or are really interested in this work too. And so we've had people that even though we don't know when it's going to get approved, we don't know those those things yet. People still want the training and they want to connect with each other. So they get together and they – I've heard people like meeting once a month and then they go through the protocol and they go through the treatment manual and they start talking with each other and saying like – what would it take for me to do this and feel comfortable? Like, I'm going to do preliminary work until um, I can get into a training or until it becomes, you know, something I can do in the future. So there's a lot of things to do in the meantime in community, in connection with other people who are wanting the same thing. And since we have those things online, you know, we have our protocols online, we have our treatment manual online, and so they can do a lot of work to begin with, Yeah.
0: Yeah, you can effectively simulate the first part of the training by becoming, of course, there are going to be major gaps, but by becoming very familiar with the treatment manual and so on. MAPS.org, everybody here probably knows that URL, but people listening might not. The the conversation brings up some memories that I have of gathering some firsthand experience of my own by volunteering with Zendo. Mm -hmm. And I bring this up because... Uh, Liana, who's part of the team here at MAPS, had mentioned to me that perhaps one question people should ask themselves before asking, do I want to be a psychedelic therapist, is do I want to be a therapist? And that psychedelics have this very sexy sheen. Yes, It puts a very nice paint job on that Corvette of a therapy job that you might not have taken otherwise. But Volunteering at Zendo, and for people who don't know, is, um, and uh, I know the the tagline has changed, so forgive me if I screw this up, but it's uh, uh, peer-based harm reduction, in in effect. And what that means is people go through trainings at a place where uh, it is likely that some attendees to say a festival or Burning Man will have uh, what they would consider a bad trip. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're then trained to hold space and sit with that person and I recommend this to anyone in part because it highlights just how unsexy it can be if that makes sense right because people think like yeah I'm gonna sit there and I'm gonna walk them through their trauma and like heal their soul and like demons be gone I'm gonna be this awesome shaman it's gonna be great and then you're like, no, actually, they just vomited on your, on your pants and uh, you need to go get some napkins because they snotted all over your, like, back of your hand and then they're asleep and you're just sitting there for six hours because they're asleep. Like, yeah, that's also the job. And I remember sitting there at Zendo's, kind of hilarious. I was sitting there because I did a lot of shifts. I'd, basically, the only reason I went to these festivals was to do as many shifts as possible, so unlike me. And... Uh, I remember this guy next to me had a, he pulled out his like contraband laminated page that he had with all his his, like secret techniques that he was gonna use in his session, like completely (laughs) outside of the protocol. And then his person was just like, I don't wanna listen to your words, and like went to sleep. And this guy was like, but my art, my art. And I was like, oh, this doesn't bode very well for this guy. So, uh, what are some other maybe, just realities that people should be aware of if they think they want to commit to doing this i
1: 'm mm-hmm. so glad you mentioned Sendo because i've from so many people i 've heard people that we 've trained i 've heard this is where I got my best training um, because it 's in this in the moment. And you need to be present for that. You don't know what they took. So it's even, you know, the safety piece is not the same as if you know, like this is MDMA, you took it an hour and a half ago in this setting. You know, so it really amps that up and... So I think it's the best training because then you're you're not role playing, right? Like you're training with somebody right there, um, live, and you're doing that work. So sometimes people do get like, "Wow, this is really hard work." And I always tell people if they get the message when they take a, a psychedelic that they should be a shaman, it's a lie.
0: <laughs> yeah and pro tip if if you meet anyone who's running around calling themselves a shaman, probably also a fair indicator that they're not anything <laughs> near being a shaman that's a whole separate diatribe um, so yeah, don't find your shamans on Craig'slist or Facebook. recommendation number one. <laughs> Uh, I think one of the also valuable things that I took from not just Zendo, but uh, watching, for instance, a documentary called Trip of Compassion, which Mm -hmm. I recommend to everyone, everyone considering becoming a psychedelic therapist or psychotherapist uh, utilizing MDMA as an an assisting molecule should watch Trip of Compassion. Mm -hmm because it makes the case, at least for me, very strongly with lots of session footage, that if you're not willing to sit for someone with what we might consider the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, etc., of course I'm not recommending doing anything in an illegal setting, but if you're not willing to do that, you probably shouldn't sit you shouldn't guide at a high, le- high level or facilitate an MDMA session in the sense that they can be very, very, very difficult. Yeah. Like your experience recreationally, where all this trauma was unlocked. And to be good in that setting really requires proper training and a high degree of sensitivity. And... Uh, yeah. Yeah it can be really hard. I mean, you can have someone who, let's say, was abused by their father, and suddenly they project that onto you as the male in the dyad, and you need to have, hopefully, some type of training or experience that enables you to handle that in a way that doesn't create more damage. Yeah,
1: yeah. I I think, you know, I've I've heard it many times when people say, like, oh, I want to become MDMA therapist, and... Um, I worry about people practicing outside their um, their competency because they think, oh, the medicine will carry it, will carry the session. And I've seen the harm caused by that many times. Um, I've had a lot of referrals into my own private practice where people had a really traumatic experience on a psychedelic because their sitter, somebody who was sitting for them, could not hold that space and... Um, it just created more harm, and so to really be aware of that—that that being in a non-ordinary state, being in a vulnerable state—you want you, you're going to pick up on that and want to know that you're with people that can hold that and that can um, and that can be there for you. And I think that that movie is so great that we have that exp- that we have that access to 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 show what people can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Also showcases some uh, very gifted therapists. Uh, yes. Yeah, some very gifted, you know, Ido and Karen and other people. Very very gifted therapists, and it shows you how how tough it can be. Uh, in a way, I would even argue that, say, in my Zendo experience, you know, this guy came in. Fortunately, in this one case, we knew what he'd taken, which was four hundred micrograms of LSD. Which, for those who don't know, is a healthy dose. Uh, Or maybe using a different adjective, it's a dose. Capital D. And uh, he was losing his mind, swinging at people. So I ended up with him in the crisis tent for eight hours. And um, it was fine, and it was actually in a way, I think, easier flailing and swinging and trying to hit you aside than MDMA because he was just on, like, a 45-second loop talking about Seinfeld and, like, Chia Pets. He was just like, Seinfeld, Chia blah, 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 blah. And then it was just, like, repeat every, whatever, 47 seconds. And you're like, all right, this guy's just on rerun. Fine. Like, sit him down. Don't let him run into anything. But with the MDMA experience, there, there really is a tradecraft that uh, is... is I, I don't think I'll... I'll do justice by trying to emphasize how technical it can be, uh, which is one piece of the puzzle. And then there's that sensitivity that you talked about and that awareness that really comes from uh, probably some degree of hardwiring, but then spending time in that environment. And if, if the patient senses that you are uneasy, which they will, (laughs) <laughs> then uh, it, it changes the entire dynamic. What are, what are other things besides people practicing outside of their competency, right? Sort of bunny slope skiers who are like, oh, I can do a black diamond, besides those people. What other things uh, concern you? What other worries do you have looking forward as things continue to become more popular mm-hmm. and more people hope to become involved in some capacity.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, you know, changing, uh, our model is our model. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's like the best model, right? And people... You mean the MAPS model. Right, the MAPS model. Um, And people might do something else and it might be fine, you know? Um, I think... uh, one thing that concerns me is the cost. So we're really looking into that and thinking about what is this going to be that we can actually, that this can be cost effective. How are we going to treat marginalized people? How are we going to not leave people behind? Um, what is it going to take? You know? and, and so I think there is room to change the model for that. And how do we do it safely? Do we have some group sessions? Do we have somewhere, it's practitioners who are, Mm, training, but they are like students, and so maybe they don't cost as much if they're um, working under somebody who is uh, trained and has more experience. And what are some of the things that can be done without losing the integrity of the whole program? And uh, so I think you know that is a concern, but it's also a concern if. If somebody takes that and changes it completely in a way that maybe it's not safe anymore, you know so there's a concern about what what can happen there. but for us, I think um, the concern about how are we going to make this affordable and how are we going to uh, continue training people that want to be ready and want um, want want that kind of knowledge in terms of like hands on our training shows a lot of videos that are live videos of what happens in sessions and sometimes it's very exciting and like you said you know that Michael was saying we're showing this parts where we are actually doing something there's times when people don't say anything for 8 hours
0: for the entire session yeah. and nonetheless just this is so important uh, nonetheless if you look at say i suppose the caps 5 is the current yes rankings, assessment tool for symptoms of PTSD, nonetheless, you have somebody who goes from extreme symptoms, unable to hold a job, and this isn't every person, but to asymptomatic, even though there was no talking, there was no, right, there was no uh, sort of, you know, Raphael, Michelangelo level, like therapy magic happening, there was a therapeutic effect in the session, with the container, with the prep, yeah, and didn't require talking in the session. Yeah,
1: I think insights when people go inside and really are not, and uh, they're both really important. Um, a lot of trauma caused by another person happened in relationship, right? There was uh, we we relate to the world through relationship is the way we understand the world. So healing also happens in relationship and happens through relating um, instead of an isolation. So those pieces are really important. And it's also really important when they can go inside. Our our model, we say, it's interdirected. It's what comes up for them that is here for a reason and for the purpose of healing. And maybe it's something that they never told you before and you think it doesn't have anything to do with their trauma or they think it doesn't have anything to do with the trauma, but it does. And so we treat it as though it does and that it is important for them to be with it. And if they're inside, they get these amazing insights. You know, they, they come out and say, wow, like I just realized this or I just thought about this. And um, we notice that when they go to the bathroom, you know, we call it the bathroom inside, but it's really when they're not talking...
0: It's like the the shower, uh-huh. yeah. to the, the bathroom inside. they either
1: like see themselves in the mirror, but they're also uh, like with themselves. You know, they're yeah. not talking and, and they're getting powerful information that is about them that is like here we are. Like maybe we knew this, but now it's becoming clearer.
0: When you look back at your first X number. I don't know what number to pick, but first few dozen experiences as a facilitator, as a therapist, what were your hardest sessions for you and why? What made them difficult? Hmm. If you think back to, let's say, the first few years of your experience.
1: Um, One of the very first sessions that I did was in the study in Spain. Mm, And... um, that study was working with women from sexual assault, so it was very close to mine, my experience. So it was like, how do I work with this? How do I? How am I present? How am I not, How do I not bring my things in? How do I not dissociate? How do I really honor that I am here for this person and my stuff is not spilling out into them? So that was a challenge, you know. And I and I think. Um, Hearing their stories was, um, so amazing. It's so, like, when people are in pain and are suffering, they're so real. There's nothing, you know, they're not thinking about what their hair looks like. They're not, they're not worried of snot's coming out of their nose and, um, they're just so incredibly real in that moment and in that, um, and in that experience. So it's beautiful in that sense, and it's also like, so painful you know, to hold um, the experiences of people that have suffered greatly and to really be able to, to say, I am here completely for you. This is your day, and it's about you.
0: What does good preparation look like for a session like this? or a session in the MAPS protocol, we, we could certainly talk about it within that context, but in your mind, what are the, the hallmarks or the characteristics of good preparation mm-hmm. for someone who has never used MDMA before, who's going into their first MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session as a patient? What is, how do you work with them to prepare well?
1: Oh, okay. How do, what do we do to prepare them? Yeah. Um,
0: that's what I should have asked
1: yeah so uh, <laughs> so we do three preparatory sessions and during those sessions it's to for them to get to be more comfortable with the therapy team and for them for us to also know like how do they how did they cope with their experience what are the things that they have been able to who got them here in in relationship to the fact that they have all this trauma, how is it that they actually got here? And what are their skills? What are they using? So to be really curious about them...
0: Their skills, like uh, coping mechanisms. Their
1: coping mechanisms. What are the stigmas that follow them that then uh, creates this place of, I see them as a certain person because they have these stigmas attached to them. And how do I take that away and really see this person in front of me? What is their vision, even if they don't know what it is? What do I imagine that their vision is? So it's a really a time to get to know them fully as an individual, as a person, and then to answer their questions and to try to bring as much comfort as possible to explain everything that can be explained. This is where you're going to lay down. You can bring a pillow. You can bring your own stuff. You know, we're going to... Is it okay if we light a candle? We're going to have flowers. This is what we can do. These are the options. We listen to music. You can say you don't want to hear the music. It's, It's up to you. These are the things that you don't have a choice about. People with PTSD we're not giving choices. Choices were taken away. So it's really important to give choice as much as we possibly can. And there's some things that we don't have a choice about because this is research and so one of them is once they take it they can't leave the room for eight hours and how are we going to work with that if you do want to leave the room because it's not about you hiding that but it's about us working with that how can we work together if you feel like you just want to run away or if you want to go outside and hug that tree and unfortunately we can't let you go outside and hug that tree
0: just imagining that in the, the summary table at the end of the research report, like number of trees hugged on average, three and a half, standard deviation. <laughs> right. I makes, thinking, makes it more complicated.
1: No, I kept thinking like we could go out there with a little chainsaw and cut part of the tree and bring it in, but it, <laughs> I haven't one, done it.
0: That's one solution. Uh, so what would be an example of what you might say to someone who goes, I can't do this. I got to get out of here. I really need to be outside. Do you... Re- first remind them of the commitment that they made earlier and the rule they agreed to. How do you handle a situation like that where someone just wants to escape? They're like, I don't like this. I'm ready for this Mm -hmm. to be over. I want to go outside. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that?
1: Really remind them of the commitment. I mean, at some point maybe you do need to say, well, you know, we're not going to be able to leave, but we're really here with you in this process of you feeling what you're feeling, your legs wanting to move and wanting to run, and where, you know, can I hold your hand? Can I sit beside you? Can we stay with this experience? It will pass. This experience will pass. What can we do in the meantime? What are some of their coping strategies if they really get to a place where they feel like, oh, I need to breathe. Can we breathe into that experience and just really be with it and know that it is going to shift and that we're right here with you. So it's about, it's totally okay. And it usually leads to uh, a profound experience of wanting to have run away before, right? It's like a connection to this piece of, oh, it was then that I wanted to run away. Not so much now.
0: I'm going to keep teasing on this thread because you're so good at this, and the, the specifics, I think, really help to paint a picture of what a session might look like. What do you do if someone, or what might you do, or say, if someone gets very judgmental about themselves? Like, oh, I fucking hate when I die. God, this is so stupid. I always fucking bad, it. And then becomes very judgmental about themselves as a whole or a part. I, know I hate that part of myself who's da-da-da. Something they've, they've really shut down and judged. What might you say to someone who's going through a period of expressing so, that? So
1: one part of uh, our model and the way that we train is to say, it's not never to get rid of anything. It's like alchemy. You don't, you don't get rid of it. You transmute it. Right? that it gets transmuted. And so it's not about getting rid of anything at all, even that part of you that is judgmental. So it's not like, mm, at least, like I wouldn't say, oh, but you know you don't have to judge yourself or anything. It's just like, this is the part that is here now, this judgmental part, and being really curious about that part. And why is there? Like, wow, like this part is existing here right now. How has it helped you survive? How have you... Um, worked around it. Let's explore why it's here and what it's bringing up in your body and what it's making you feel in this very moment.
0: This is why you're so much better at this than I am. So good. You've done so much good work. Thank you. It's really... It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And uh, so thrilled to have you on stage to have a chance to talk about this. Uh, What separates in your mind... If you look back at all the people you've worked with, a good psychedelic therapist, let's focus on MDMA specifically, versus a great
1: wow. psychedelic
0: therapist. Like the the good people versus the great. Because I feel like you can check a bunch of boxes and kind of get a passing grade, get somebody mm-hmm. out the door safely. And then there's then there's really good, and right? Then there's a great therapist. And, and I'm not sure I would even necessarily know how to describe what separates those two be, because I don't have the canvas that you have. I mean, you have such a, you have such a perspective on this. So if, if you think back on your experiences with different people, are there any, any examples you could give of, of what makes someone in your mind great or mm-hmm. stories that come to mind, anything?
1: Well, I think the most that we can offer is ourselves. So I think it's when we can enter... I think what makes a psychedelic therapist great is if we can enter into their frame of reference. And in order to enter into somebody's frame of reference, I have to leave my interpretations behind. I have to leave my own story behind... I have to leave my own knowledge behind um, and have it right there and understand that I can use it. But um, not letting my knowledge blur my vision, not ne- not for it not to narrow what is really happening here. So in order to really step into somebody's experience, it's more than empathy. It's, empathy is, is part of it, but it's really about... Um, I am not at all. I have like um, um, like this disciplined ignorance of I, I'm stepping in and I'm fully here with you without any judgment. And who are you in there? And how do I begin to know that I can hold that and that it doesn't mean, oh, I know how you feel because I felt that. It's not that. I can have my own feelings of I think I know what this feels like because I've had it but it has nothing to do with what, fe- with what they're feeling and to put that aside and to know that that's my stuff. And so I think in part is that and the other piece is that which maybe relates to that is if I don't spill over any of my stuff like they, they see me and I, they get me but they don't have to take care of me. And I can even cry and say, I'm so moved by this, and it's okay. So I had, like, we had a a participant that said to me, he was a little bit worried that some of his, the things that he would share would be too much for me. And he said, so are you going to, what are you going to do? What are you going to feel like? What are you going to think of me if I tell you these um, really awful things? That happened and war. And if I tell you these things about myself, like, what are you gonna do? Like, are you gonna be okay? Like, are you gonna be able to just be okay and uh, not be faced by that? And I thought, I might have a really strong feeling about that. It might be really challenging and really hard. And I can take care of myself. It's okay. I can take care of myself. But it might be really, really hard.
0: We're going to talk about post as well, because I don't want to neglect that, but to to dig a little bit deeper on the not making the session about you, right? Having all of these narratives about your own experience spill over, is there a place for sharing pieces of your own experience in a showing of vulnerability in the preparation? Or is it just like... I am a doctor, authority figure, and you know, need-to-know basis as far as background. Like, is is there a value in the preparatory sessions of sharing Mm -hmm. sort of what has brought you there, in addition to hearing what brought them there? Is there a value in that, or does that contaminate the process in Um, some fashion?
1: In our phase two study, every time a participant came in. Um, you know, we didn't have a lot of uh, media at the time. There wasn't a lot of stories that had been written about MDMA. Um, MAPS was not necessarily known by a lot of people, including some of the participants. They had never even heard of MAPS. They were just referred by somebody else. And they would come into the room and they would go, wait, you're Marcela? Like, they were expecting me to be wearing like a white lab coat. and And it was like, it, it was really like interesting, you know, what they were expecting. And... I think self-disclosure is very valuable and it also needs to be done with a lot of care so that it doesn't become about you. And when do you self-disclose and why are you self-disclosing? You know, are you doing it in service of you because you're uncomfortable and you need to do something with this? Or am I doing it in service of my participant to normalize something and to share with them an experience that I'm having? And so I... um, I'm definitely not this kind of therapist. I think, um, I don't know which is better, but I'm just not. And I do self-disclose a lot. I, my clients know, you know, that I'm married, my kids. My co-therapist is my husband, and I we, we talk about it sometimes, and we say, you know, we're married, and things come up in the session sometimes like oh I disagree with you and we talk we, we talk through it and they go like this is so great that we're getting this experience of this reality.
0: You mean you and your you and your husband disagree in the session? Yeah. Oh all right. How do you what what are the rules of engagement for that?
1: Well I'm still his boss.
0: Like you know no elbows I'm guessing. Got a box <laughs> clean boxing. Uh, yeah how do you what would be an example of something you might disagree on? This is really interesting to me on so many levels. This is just like levels upon levels of interesting.
1: Um, I don't remember the specifics, but um, one time um, I said something to the participant. I'm trying to think what it was. Do you remember? No. (laughs) Um, And I was going in a direction. Like I... I didn't think I was going in a direction, but I was, even though like, that's what, you, what I check myself with. It's like, am I, why am I going in this direction? Like, are they taking me in this direction? And I thought the participant was taking me in this direction, and he thought the participant was taking us in a different direction. And he was able to say, well, I see this a little bit differently. I'm, I'm seeing this differently. And actually, the participant went like, what? And... And then we had a conversation about it. And he said his piece. And I said, well, I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know about that. I wasn't convinced. Um, and we worked with it. And we worked with her. It wasn't like we st- got stuck on it. But later on, um, she was having an interview. Somebody was interviewing her. And she talked about it. And she said, that was so great because it was like seeing these two people who clearly love each other and respect each other disagree and be okay and continue and still support each other and respect each other is something that I never saw growing up so it's like so valuable for her if it was done in this way that was that was genuine
0: yeah I can definitely see that uh what does the post look like? And if, 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 if we, just to tag, to put some hours on it, the three preparatory sessions are how long each?
1: 90 minutes.
0: 90 minutes. All right. So we got 90, 90. And then how many post or integration sessions are there? Three. Which, three, also 90 yep. minutes each. Okay, so someone else can add that all up. But I just want to say one thing, which is if you are not willing to put that type of prep and post into anyone you sit for, you shouldn't be sitting for anyone. If it's like, oh, it's so much time, well, it's busy. Da, da da da. Look at my, this is a school night. Blah blah. If you have any excuses around it, you shouldn't be sitting for anybody. That's just my perspective. Yeah, it's true. Uh, because that's uh, that's that's a hurdle that I think you should at least be able to clear. Yeah before even considering this. And that's putting aside all of the homework and training and certification and so on.
1: And you're still on call. Like that night, the evening of their sessions, you're on call. They're still going to... You still make phone calls after their session for seven days. You, um, They can call you and say, I need an extra session or I'm struggling and you need to be present and go there. So it's a lot more than just... Uh, the, the scheduled one sometimes.
0: Right. That's the scheduled time.
1: Yeah.
0: And uh, I think it's worth pointing out also that if you are knowingly or unknowingly, and it could be unknowingly, working with someone who has a history of trauma and possibly suicidal ideation, you could end up in some very challenging situations. And it is... Uh, not always the case that people have, say, an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session, and then it's just smooth sailing for the next week, right? Also I mean, maybe the time. It's not. It's not right. Mm-hmm. So, could you talk to that because I think it's this is a an aspect of the experience that is is not discussed as often as it should.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, and and I do think you know I really appreciate um, stories that are that go out um, that the uh, that the media does about MDMA and one of the the disservices is that a lot of times they hook on these little words like it healed me or um it was you know I I got what I needed and I got cured and so so then people think like it's really easy or that MDMA is like this magic pill that's gonna like really take this trauma away which is not true um and And a lot of times during training, trainees will say, wow, like here's the integrative session after the treatment and people are suffering and people are really struggling and they can feel a lot of activation and they can even feel like, even like sometimes their partners say to us, what are you doing to my partner? You know, what are you doing? She's in so much pain, he's in so much pain. And um, and it's... If you think about trauma, like no matter how much you heal from trauma, if I think about my trauma, it's going to be painful. It's not going to be joyous and easy. It's going to be painful. So bringing up the trauma, really experiencing, sometimes even getting, I think part of the healing that happens with MDMA is people no longer questioning that it happened and that it happened as violently as it did and that they have sort of, try to question that, try to change the story, and all of a sudden the story can be changed. Here's your story. You know, that's what happened to me that first time. Here's your story, actually. So so then how could you possibly, like if you're going through all that, it, It's it's not going to be that the next day you're oh, I'm fine, and it's great, It's that it is a process of holding, of really integrating what is happening in the session, of getting to some place where they can begin to hold that experience and be able to hold their feelings and be able to, I mean, healing is about, I'm never, it's not about I'm never going to be triggered. Healing is I can get triggered and I can move through it and maybe it's going to take me less time and maybe I'm not gonna dissociate, and I can hold all of that experience and still have enough space to live a beautiful life.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Where can people learn more about the resources that are available, the options that are available for exploring this work? not necessarily deciding ahead of time that this is what they should do or will do, but to to better educate themselves, to understand what's involved, mm-hmm. to learn more.
1: Yeah. You know, MAPS has a good um, library, right? Like reading a lot of the books there, but also uh, there's some great articles that have been written that you can look through, that you can see people's experiences, experiences. Um, have people have done beautiful work talking about their own experience and have really shared with others about their process? I know a lot of our participants have done that, and you know it's such an honor for them to share of themselves in this really, really volu- from this vulnerable places. So I would say, really. Um, Read. Read about experiences that people have had. Read about researchers writing about it. Um, educate yourself as much as you possibly can about the, the treatment that you want to do, about being a psychedelic therapist. And even though, you know, we don't have that now, I know CIIS, the Californian Institute, has a... Um, has a certificate program for research in psychedelics now. And I'm sure that that's going to grow. And I get a lot of emails of people asking me, where do I do? Where do I go? And um, I explore it a little bit with them of like what interests them. Maybe I think transpersonal psychology is a great way into it. Um, But I also say, take a lot of read uh, articles, find out where the people who wrote those articles are from. If you really like those articles, if you feel like, oh, it's like-minded people, where are they? Are they, some of them are professors at universities where, oh, I can go and study with them instead of just going to a university where nobody is knowing about it, but yet you want to be a psychedelic therapist. So where there's other people who are already, uh, you don't have to invent it, you're not alone, there's plenty, and there's a lot of support to to learn and to really, um, you know, there's a new generation coming on and I feel like they're a little bit in a hurry and I keep reminding them like, I've done this for 35 years, I've waited 35 years, you can wait, it's okay, you can wait one more year.
0: (laughs) And since you mentioned uh, transpersonal psychology, I'll just quote Stan Groff, whose advice at one point, people are like, what should we do next? What should we do next? This is recently. And he goes, don't fuck it up. Yes. It's, it's, it's fine to move with purpose. It's generally not a good idea, and certainly not a good idea with these compounds to rush. No. <laughs> it's not going to the movie's not going to it's it's not going to end as a romantic comedy. <laughs> it's going to end really poorly if people rush. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, maps people can find at maps.org. Yeah. Of course. I think,
1: is it up there? Maybe um, maybe Bryce can put it up.
0: Yeah, we'll also for those people who are listening to this in audio Put all of the links and many additional resources on the website at right. tim.blog forward slash podcast. So if you go to yeah. tim.blog forward slash podcast, search Marcella, M A R C L A, probably easier than the last name, then it'll pop right up and, and I will gather resources that can act as starting points. Yeah. Whether that's on the MAPS website links to studies for those who want to become more familiar with study design, some of the results, the tools that are used for measurement, and so on. There are a lot of very easy ways to get started yeah, to have a basic understanding. Yeah, I think
1: maps.org um, forward slash training. And even though we don't have the training set up yet for next year, you can still apply, and we'll consider those applications. We'll keep them on file, and we consider those applications. And like I said... By the end of this year, we'll have the list for next year and where, where they'll be. And um, our trainings are roughly around 54, 54, 55 trainees at a time. And then people will start knowing a little bit better. And in the meantime, like, gather your team, you know, like, or... Or really look into the MAPS website and see if there's an existing team that is wanting more people and that you know you don't want to have five sites in your city. You want to be able to consolidate and be able to say, let's, let's work together if we have a common ground.
0: And, and what I'll work with you and the MAPS team on afterwards is brainstorming options, like you mentioned, possible. Chaplain A, B, having experiential options mm-hmm where people can you know, take the boat out on the harbor and like eh, just do a couple of circles before they try to cross the Atlantic to yeah. make sure that they're okay with their sea legs and that it's actually something that when it's unsexy and when it's hard.
1: Do you still want to do it?
0: They still want to do it. Kind of
1: like marriage. I mean-
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, Molly, yeah, I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still there when Yeah, Molly, to... Molly's still very attentive she, she's in it with us uh, are there any books that have had an impact on your thinking in this space and I'm just going to leave it very broad could be about anything, could be art, could be uh, Claudio Naranjo we talked about that book a bit earlier which I personally found very very interesting, which one? Oh, the, the Healing yeah. Journey yes and uh, looks at some very, very interesting compounds. Uh, and not only the compounds, but the, the session content, including the dead ends, including challenges, mm-hmm. right? It's not just the highlight reel, which yeah. I really appreciate about that book. Are there any books that have, have really influenced your thinking or your trajectory as it relates to mm-hmm. the work?
1: I have dyslexia, so I'm really bad with t- names. So... I don't know if I'm going to remember, but I know um, Bruce Tift. He is in Boulder, Colorado, and he wrote a book called Already Free.
0: Already Free. Yes. Bruce Tift? uh
1: Uh-huh, Tift. And he um, combines buddhism and psychoth- and psychotherapy and it's really a wonderful combination of being able to to marry these two of being present you know how do how are we present with what's happening in the moment so i think he, i think his book is is really really good um, and i'm trying to think in terms of i mean i think you know i notice every time that that we show um, we do trainings or we do workshops. we always put up um, we always put up poetry that really speaks to what we're trying to say, so like when we 're ta- talking about the inner healer, we put up poetry about that kind of speaks to that, and I think poetry is so important because it really does actually talk about some of these experiences about about um, doing uh being inner directed about your inner healer about your compassion about your love about where to come from that so i think it's it's doing the work i think stan groff's work is amazing and his books are very powerful and so helpful right that we can really refer to um to some of his modality and what he's done in his trajectory of life i think is incredible and um so People like that. Um, I'm trying to think.
0: Do you have any favorite poets? I do. <laughs> let's let's tell me more about Octavio,
1: these favorite. Octavio
0: Octavio Paz. Octavio Paz.
1: He's a, he's a favorite. Pablo Neruda is a favorite. Um, I I really like Isabel Allende. I mean, she's a writer. But what's her last name? Allende. Allende. Uh-huh.
0: Doble L. Yes. Allende. A L
1: L. Uh huh. She's um, she's incredible, and she really is this you know powerful, powerful woman who can who can really speak to um, honoring people's experience and and doing it through um, you know I'm a Colombian, so I really do see things through images and fantasy and and those fantasies. And are actually true, like my husband doesn't believe me, but some of those things are true, even though they sound like really fantastic they're actually true and and um, so not just reading about psychology that's I just think that's not my path. I just think there's so many other places science I can't remember who said um, was so helpful for me in doing research because. You know, holding research and holding a person, it's a real balance. This is the research part. This is the part that I need to do, that I need to treat them all the same. And this is the part that is an individual, right? And it's this balance. And I was having a really hard time with that. I didn't know quite how to manage it. And I read um, a scientific journal that said, he said, science is an organized kind of wonder, and that makes so much sense to marry these two, right? So
0: that's a great quote, and uh, it's it's also very helpful for people who may be on the uh, non-clinical path currently to to at least understand the vocabulary of a scientific study. Yeah, it's really helpful. And uh, there's a book called Bad Science by Ben Goldacre, which has a number of chapters that are really helpful for becoming scientifically literate in an unintimidating way and a very practical way. You can use it immediately in reading any newspaper, any article that makes any claims related to health. And uh, then Peter Tia M-D, A-T-T-I-A, Peter Tia M-D. His website's M.D. same, com has a series of articles called, I believe it's Studying the Studies, which teaches you how to read studies. And it's an exceptional series of articles that you can find for free, which helps you to realize if you may have, through your own experience, developed perhaps an anti, what you might call Western scientific angle, that science is not, shouldn't be a set of dogma. Right. As you said, it's sort of an organized way to wonder and scratch that itch yeah. in a way that can then be replicated and tested so that you know what you know when you know it, if that makes any sense. Right? Yeah. Like, So you have a certainty of knowing, which is very challenging in this space. Yeah. There are so many possible variables. Yeah. Uh, it really, really matters that you pay attention to the details and follow protocol, but it can be incredibly challenging mm-hmm. when you have the science and yeah. the art, which in fact do not need to be at odds.
1: And that you can, I mean, it's important to read about science and the research about psychedelics, but I think science about something else. I've learned so much about science through people who have done studies with um, certain animals or uh, certain species or plants and they've done these studies and it's like so fascinating to really incorporate that and to really bring it, it just brings some freshness into it that you can say oh, that makes perfect sense I'm going to utilize that to understand this psychedelic
0: research Yeah, and you know it's, what's so uh, fun about this conversation and we're, we're out of time so we'll wrap up for me is is seeing the the, the micro and the macro and the macro and the micro in the sense that you're describing how you develop the skills that you have, yeah. which was borrowing liberally and, and traveling these indirect but highly relevant paths, incorporating different techniques from different areas. And in a sense, in a given session, you also have to be good at coming at things from different angles and looking at them from different perspectives. So you see it in both. And you're uh, uh, incredibly gifted and more than incredibly gifted at what you do. You're very well-practiced and deliberate with what you do. And uh, through your own pain and suffering, I've found a way to transmute, as you said, that into something really valuable and powerful for other people who are in pain, and there are a lot of people. I think Mm -hmm. that's pretty much everyone who is born a human. And you're putting a real positive dent in the world, so thank you very much, and I really appreciate you taking the time on stage with uh, me and Molly.
1: I didn't throw up on you. (laughs) Muchas
0: (laughs) gracias. dug up This episode is brought to you by Helix Sleep. Last year I focused on dramatically improving a few things, surprise surprise, Most notably, the quality of my sleep, which seems to affect just about everything. This led me to revisit, you name it, my daily routine, morning routine, exercise, diet, all the way to what I slept on. And I ended up getting all new beds here in Austin, Texas, including mattresses from Helix Sleep. Helix has built a sleep quiz that takes two minutes to complete, and they use the answers to match your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect Mattress. Whether you're a side sleeper, hot sleeper, cold sleeper, or you like plush, you like firm, with Helix, there's no more guessing or confusion. Just go to helixsleep.com forward slash Tim take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. That is their promise. For couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. They have a 10-year warranty, and you can test drive your mattress for 100 nights risk-free. Right now, Helix is offering up to $125 off of all mattress orders, so check it out. Get up to 125 off at helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. That's helixsleep.com forward slash Tim for $125 off your mattress order. Take a look, helixsleep.com forward slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Ring. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. You might already know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people everywhere. Ring helps you to stay connected to your home from anywhere in the world. Very important for me given how much I travel and bounce around. So if there's a package delivery or a surprise visitor, good or bad, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to whoever is at your door, all from your phone. I've personally used Ring for years now. I've known about Ring from day one, actually, and tried early prototypes and throughout, so I've been a user for a long time. It catches and records all the regular stuff, like deliveries and so on, but it's also saved my ass quite a few times, catching weirdos and weird things. So. Ring is key to my peace of mind. And as a listener of The Tim Ferriss Show, you have a special offer on a Ring welcome kit available right now at ring.com slash Tim, T-I-M. The kit includes a video doorbell and a Chime Pro, which are just what you need to start building a ring of security around your home today. So check it out. Go to ring.com slash Tim to take advantage of this offer today or just to learn a little bit more. Check out the details at ring.com slash Tim. This offer is for U.S. residents only.